Today is December 20th, 2015. This Friday is Christmas Day. I will not be bringing a Christmas message this morning. We have been working our way through the book of Matthew, and so we're going to continue in that study. And since we're continuing in Matthew 21, you can turn to John 2. You know how that works. John 2, who is not here today. That's right. But there is no passage called Devante. So so we went with John 2. Okay. Family humor. The next thing that we read in Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is moving progressively toward his inevitable date with a cross, we have been reading about Jesus heading toward Jerusalem, and he has repeatedly told his disciples, his apostles, that the reason he is going to Jerusalem is that he is going to be handed over to the Gentiles and to the Jews, and that he is going to be beaten, and that he is going to be killed, that he is going to die, and that three days later, He's going to return. He has told them this repeatedly as they are on this journey toward Jerusalem. And, of course, you know that none of them really understand it. Sometimes they argue with him and say, let that be far from you. Other times, right after he gets done explaining what's going to happen to him, they immediately argue about which of them is going to be greatest in the kingdom. They simply don't seem to understand that Jesus is absolutely prioritizing himself. And the next thing that Matthew tells us is that after the triumphal entry that we looked at last week, when he entered into Jerusalem riding on a on a donkey that no one had ever ridden on before, and after the people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, and threw their cloaks and palm branches in the streets, the next thing that Jesus did was go into the temple again. There are two cleansings of the temple in Jesus' ministry. We read about the first one in the Gospel of John, which is why we're starting in John 2 this morning. Because John 2 also gives us some indication of Jesus' motivation, what drove him to do what he did in the temple. But then three and a half years basically pass, and Jesus returns to the temple after having been gone for a bit, and he walks in and finds the same problems that he saw previously. And so again, he goes through the process of driving out the money changers and cleansing the temple. In other words, this is a really big deal. Jesus does it twice. Now, why is it such a big deal? What is the offense that Jesus is so bothered by? Historically, Jerusalem is the city where God chose to place his name. Of all the places on the planet, of all the geographical locations, Jerusalem is the place that God chose. Once David became king over the United Twelve Tribes, which is happening roughly a thousand years before Jesus is on the planet. We're talking about right about 960, 970 B.C. David, when he became king, originally ruled from a city called Hebron. 
And then he moved the capital of the United Twelve Tribes to Jerusalem, which at the time was called Jebus. It was the city of the Jebusites. He conquered it by going in through a secret water and cistern under the walls, and they conquered Jebus. And then it was renamed Jerusalem. Now that word Salem at the end of it is actually a really ancient name that reaches all the way back to the book of Genesis and the first appearance, well, the only appearance, of a guy named Melchizedek. I argue that Melchizedek is a Christophany, and Melchizedek is called specifically the king of Salem. And then the writer of Hebrews interprets that for us and tells us that means king of peace. And I can't imagine how any human being could bear the title of king of peace or prince of peace unless he is, in fact, Jesus himself. But that name, king of Salem, you know, in the Hebrew language, there are no vowels. There are vowel indicators, but different words are pronounced different ways depending on the vowel pointers. And so Salem is a version of the same word shalom. Shalom is the masculine noun form of the word. So it essentially means peace. That's the root of all of this, is this is the city, this is the place, this is the location of God's peace. And the reason that it bears that name is because after David established it as the capital of national Israel, his son Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem became the location of the worship of God, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of Israel. He was worshipped at Jerusalem, and not just generally Jerusalem, but in the temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem. And then eventually Solomon's temple was destroyed during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and then it was rebuilt. And in the Old Testament, you can read about the, the rebuilding efforts, the reestablishment of the temple, because it was so very important to Jewish worship and the worship of Yahweh. Then this particular temple that Jesus is dealing with, walking into, and ultimately predicts the destruction of, is a temple that was built by King Herod, King Herod was not historically Jewish. He was Edomian. He was known historically as sort of a puppet king. He was used by Rome in order to keep the, the Jewish masses happy. Here, we'll let you have a king. But he really didn't operate in genuine autonomy the way a king would because he was under the yoke of Rome. And so in order to curry favor with the Jewish people, he spent a tremendous amount of time and effort and money on rebuilding the temple. The big difference between Herod's temple and Solomon's temple is that once Solomon's temple was built, the Ark of the Covenant was in there. But then after the destruction of that temple over the course of time, the Ark of the Covenant, along with all the other furniture that's in the temple, is lost. It's hidden somewhere. And to this day, it hasn't been discovered, except by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but outside of that, no one knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. And Herod's temple 
never had the Ark of the Covenant inside it, which means that the genuine worship of God that culminated in the cloud of God that would come down and land between the angel's wings on the caparith above the Ark of the Covenant, that never occurred in Herod's temple. The previous temples had been cleansed by God himself when God would appear between the angel wings and the cloud of God would fill the temple. And so those previous temples were sanctified by God himself. Herod's temple was not. However, it was still the temple of God dedicated to one thing only. And this is what had Jesus so upset. The temple of God had one purpose and one purpose only. The worship of God. Everything that happened inside that temple had to do with the worship of God, the continual sacrifice of animals, the course of priests and Levites who worked in the temple daily, the repetitious changing out of the bread that was on the table of showbread every Sabbath. Everything, every piece of furniture, it was all designed for one purpose, the worship of God. But human beings, being human beings, have a habit of inserting themselves into the worship of God and changing the focus away from God himself into all of the flummery and chicanery and marketeering that we human beings are so fond of. And so within the temple, people began selling and exchanging and creating commerce within the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus was so upset with. For instance, there were the money changers. Money changers were a result of the fact that the Pharisees decided that there had to be a particular kind of money, a temple money. But then people would come with their different kinds of monies that they would bring from their different areas, and they would exchange for the temple money. And in that exchange, they would end up losing Because the people who were selling and exchanging money were keeping a little back for themselves. It was an unfair exchange. You were required to bring your animals, to bring your sacrifices, to bring your first fruits. You were required to bring the best of your animals in order to sacrifice them to God. But people were coming with money in their hand, going through a little temple money exchange, and then using that money in order to buy animals right there in the temple. And oftentimes the animals that were for sale were not the best. Sometimes they were spotted or diseased and they were used as sacrifices. This is not what God required. God required individual sacrifice from the individual people that he had blessed. And they had to bring the best of what God had given them and bring it as a burnt offering in order to bring a sweet savor, a sweet aroma into the nostrils of God. And so they shortchanged all of that. Quick shortcuts. The least animal that you could sacrifice to God was a bird, a dove. And so there were sellers of doves who would just sell you an animal. So you'd go into the temple under a feeling of obligation. Well, I got to go sacrifice an animal. So you'd pull some money out of your pocket. You'd go buy yourself a dove. You'd give it to the priest. He would sacrifice the dove on your behalf. And you'd walk away thinking you had satisfied God. But none of that was worship. The essence of the word worship, well, the Greek word proskuneo, actually means kiss toward, 
But what it means is to do obeisance, the essence of worship, is to get on your face in front of somebody, to kneel down in front of them and recognize their complete mastery and superiority over you. That is the essence of what worship is. But when you start shortchanging God's worship, when you start recreating God's worship in order to make it easier for you or more convenient for you, you are no longer doing things God's way, you're doing things your way. You're doing things in a man-made fashion rather than in a God-ordained fashion. And that's exactly what Jesus was so upset about. In fact, he ends up saying, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And by turning it into a den of thieves, you've turned it into marketeering, and you've turned it into selling and product and profit. And that's never what the temple was supposed to be. Let's read it from John 2, starting in verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those that were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of merchandise. So that was his motivation. That's what upset him so badly. This was not supposed to be a place where people were making a profit where people were turning money and selling animals. This was supposed to be a place dedicated to the worship and recognition of God and God alone. By the way, this image of Jesus making a scourge of cords is not exactly the image of Jesus that is popularly advanced in modern evangelicalism, where most of the time they picture Jesus as being always soft and tender, walking around with a baby lamb on his shoulders, with his hair perfect. That's the image that people have of Jesus. Here you have Jesus whipping people, a scourge of cords with which he drove people out of the temple. You have to remember that Jesus is far more than just meek and mild, gentle Jesus, but that he is, in fact, the judge of the universe. And that he is the only one who can righteously judge. And in a minute, we're going to find out that the apostles remembered that it was predicted of him. It was prophesied of him that the zeal of the house of the Lord was going to consume him. Because think about it for just a moment. If you expand your thinking of who Jesus is, if he is, in fact, God in flesh, if he is Yahweh incarnate, if he is one part of the triune Godhead, then the worship that's been going on in the temple for the last thousand years is the worship of him, of his Father, of the Holy Spirit, of the Trinity. This is his house. This is his place where his worship is supposed to be going on. He's the only one who has the right to walk in and say, wrong, wrong, this is all wrong, you're doing it wrong, get out. Nobody else has that kind of authority because nobody else can say, this is my house. But he can say, this is my house. This is my father's house. 
This is the place where my worship happens. Now get out. The disciples remembered, verse 17, that it was written, zeal for thine house has consumed me. The Jews, therefore, answered and said to him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Of course, the Jews in the temple would be incredibly upset by the fact that he is upsetting their money-making scheme. This is how they make their income. Notice that he didn't just drive out the people. He drove out the animals. You've got scattered animals now. You've got money, tables turned over. Nobody knows now which coins belong to who. There's real genuine pandemonium going on here. And so, of course, the Jews would say, what authority do you have to do this? Because that would be the question they would ask any of us. If we went in there and started overturning tables and driving out animals, they'd say, who do you think you are? How do you get away with this? So naturally, they asked Jesus, what sign are you going to show us seeing that you do these things? Of course, they always ask for a sign, constantly ask for a sign. Show us a sign. And he is very consistent in his reply. He always tells the Jews, the unbelievers, that they only get one sign. He said the sign of Jonah, the same way that Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man was going to be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. That was the only sign he was going to give them. They were looking for do a miracle, do something. Heal a blind guy. Make a lame person walk. He'd been doing that for three and a half years. Still didn't satisfy them. He said, you get one sign only. Verse 19, he answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Of course, we know what he's talking about. We know that he was talking about his body, the temple of his body. When he said, destroy this temple, tear me down, and in three days I'll be back again. Because that's the only sign that he ever consistently offered to the unbelievers. The Jews, therefore, because they didn't understand anything he was talking about, thought that he was talking about the actual physical temple that they were standing in. So they argue with him. The Jews, therefore, said, it took us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up again in three days? And then John tells us in verse 21 that he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, John tells us, looking back on that event, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Okay, so that helps us understand. Now go to the book of Matthew. Go to Matthew 21. That helps us to understand why Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, John places the cleansing of the temple right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after his 40 days in the wilderness, right after his baptism, straight into the temple, cleansing the temple. John then doesn't make any mention of the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry, but the three synoptic gospels mention the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry, and they all consistently place it right there when he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. So when we harmonize those Gospels and put them together, we recognize two separate events, and even the details and the way they're described are a bit different. 
But at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he had this great zeal for the house of God and two times went in and drove out the money changers, starting in chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 12. And Jesus entered the building and cast out all those that were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Interesting yet again, and I, I, I'm always fascinated by the fact that Jesus does this over and over again. He did not say this temple should be dedicated to the worship of God because I say so. He keeps driving the Jews back to the text. What does the word of God say? Because it's already written, because God has already declared it, because it's already in the prophets, it has now been declared to you, so you're responsible to know it. And you're responsible to respond to it, you're responsible to do it. So Jesus didn't stand there and say, I hold you guilty. He said, the word of God that is already written that you should know judges you as guilty. You should have known that my house is a house of prayer. You should have known that. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. So all of their buying and their selling and their money changing, Jesus saw as nothing more than thievery, a robber's den. Now from there we read that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Very much like the blind man we looked at in the text last week. Jesus again demonstrated his authority, his power, even as he was on his way to Jerusalem to be killed, to turn himself over to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to be killed. Nevertheless, he still had all the authority. He still had all the power. He could still heal anybody he wanted. The authority that he had that was imbued in him was never diminished, was never undermined by the fact that he was crucified. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, that's a very key phrase. Notice that the scribes and the priests, the people who are going to gin up all of the animosity against him, the people who are going to really drive the effort to crucify him, were really, really guilty because they saw all the things he did. They saw the healings. He was doing these healings right in the temple. After he had overturned tables, after he had driven out money changers, he still was doing miracles and they saw it. They witnessed it. They experienced it. They saw the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they became indignant. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you think that anybody who saw the kinds of miracles he did would say, well, this is something different. This is something unique. We should not be opposed to this. Because really, what did Jesus ever do that was wrong? What did he ever do that anybody could judge him for? Absolutely nothing. He was the only good man who ever walked the earth. And everything he did was designed for the glory and the worship of God. There's nothing you can charge this guy with. This guy. I just reduced the Lord of glory to this guy. There was nothing that you could judge Jesus 
and yet they were indignant over the fact that he was in there demonstrating his authority and his power in the temple. There is a, a, a modus operandi going on in the modern church these days that says you should come to faith in Jesus Christ based on miracles. The healing evangelists that come through Nashville regularly because this is a, a hub of the Bible Belt. And they come through and rent out a big hall and they say, come see the miracles. And people, poor people, people desperate for some kind of healing, some kind of relief, go to these rallies in the hope that maybe they're going to be healed. Maybe they'll get some respite from their pain, some relief. And these poor people come there and these marketeers demonstrate their chicanery and their fake miracles that they do. But then after the quote-unquote miracles, that's the point at which they say, now let's have an altar call, come to Jesus. On what basis? Well, on the basis of the miracles. Because the assumption is, if human beings see miracles, they'll have faith. That doesn't exist. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit of God, and if God himself does not grant you the ability to believe, you won't even if you see miracles. You see it time and time again in the Bible. Over and over again, you see the enemies of Christ who witness his miracles. They witness the great deeds that he does, and then they hate him and they kill him for it. Because faith, real genuine faith, is always a gift. And you can't rev it up no matter how many times you see great grand miracles. Jesus did real miracles, genuine miracles. The faith healers are doing fake miracles. In other words, they're calling people to faith on the basis of fake miracles and thinking that people will believe on the basis of that fakery. Jesus did real miracles, genuine miracles, life-altering miracles, and people did not believe. So if we're going to keep our theology consistent with the Bible, we have to recognize that the miracles that he did down to his own death, burial, and resurrection, the one and only sign he would give the Jews, we have to recognize that those were not done in front of them in order to save them. They were done in order to make them guilty because they saw it. It was right there in front of them. And they rejected it. And you don't get more guilty than that. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They thought that he ought to equally be upset by the fact that the children were saying, you're the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David. The fact that they were crying out praises to him. If he were just a man, if he was a flesh and blood human being, if he was Todd, under no circumstances should we start crying out Hosanna to Todd. That just shouldn't happen because he's a man, he's a sinful man, and therefore he does not deserve praise and worship. He does not deserve to be glorified by other men or held in high esteem by other humans because he is equally human with them. And that's what the Jews were arguing. They were saying, okay, you might be a rabbi, you might be a teacher, but do you hear what these kids are saying? They're recognizing you as the son of David. They're saying you're the Messiah. 
They're saying praise and worship to you. Make it stop. Tell them to quit that. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. And have you never read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself? Once again, he goes back to the scripture and says to them, haven't you read that? If you had read that, you would know that this has to happen. If you had read that, you would understand that this has been prophesied of me, and I am standing here right now fulfilling that prophecy in your sight. But the reason you hate me, the reason you reject me, and the reason you say these things to me is because you don't know the scripture. He's quoting from a psalm. He's quoting from Psalm 8.2, and he said, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants, out of nursing babes, thou hast prepared Praise for yourself. Notice something else that Jesus has done right there. Because there is a very important theological implication here that I don't want us to miss. When David wrote that in the Psalms, he was speaking of God. He was speaking of Yahweh. Jesus just took that passage that was meant for Yahweh. He just took it and applied it to himself. He one more time said, I'm God. You better recognize me for who I am. That's why I have this kind of zeal for this temple. That's why I can say, my house is going to be a house of prayer. Haven't you ever read that? Don't you know that? Because this was the house that belonged to Yahweh, and this is the house that belongs to Jesus. And Jesus continually, constantly made himself equal with God. One of the charges that the Jews level against Jesus when they do finally crucify him is they accuse him of blasphemy. And the particular blasphemy that they believe he's guilty of is the blasphemy of making himself equal with God. That's what they accuse him of. And by the way, if he's not God, they're right. If he's not God then he's a blasphemer and deserves to be shut down. If he is God, then they're the guilty ones. And he time and time again demonstrated with irrefutable proofs that he was God, and yet they would not believe, they would not recognize him, they would not have faith in him. Why? Because there had to be people at this particular Passover so blinded and so full of hatred against him that they would kill him. Every bit of this is being accomplished exactly according to the predestinary, predeterminate will of God. If Jesus had come into Jerusalem and everybody there universally said, Hosanna, son of David, let's go. Well, then there's no sacrifice. There's no cross. There's no Golgotha. There's no propitiatory sacrifice. There's no redemptive work. There's no Christ being raised from the dead. There's none of that, and we are absolutely dependent on all of that for our salvation. Which means that God not only gave some people faith, but he blinded some people's eyes and stirred them up against his son so much so that they would hate him and kill him 
mock him, scourge him, do everything they could to shut him down. And I think that's why he said, the sign I'm going to give you is after you're done with all that, I'll be back. That's the sign. And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. One more real important thing. Notice he did not convert them. He left them there. In their anger, in their blindness, in their rebellion, he left them there. Because it was never his intention to save them. Despite the fact that we hear all the time about God's universal benevolence and that God loves everybody equally and wants everybody to come to him, you just don't find that in the Bible. It's hard on us to hear that. It's difficult for us to hear that, but you just don't find it in the Bible anywhere. Instead, what you find is a God who is absolutely sovereign, who treats individual people according to the great plan that ultimately glorifies him, that raises up his son, that exemplifies the truth of his word. And his word repeatedly includes the fact that God blinds some people for his own purposes, for his own glory. But he's been doing that forever, from the beginning, ever since he chose Abel's offering over Cain's offering. I would argue ever since he let the serpent into the garden. He has always been using the evil and the sin and the depravity of human beings and the wickedness of spiritual wickedness in high places. He has always been able to use that in his divine sovereignty to accomplish his grand and great and glorious plan, including using these sinful men to accomplish the salvation of his people. So, remember, in order to read what we're about to read in verse 18, after his triumphal entry, after riding into Jerusalem, he then wept over Jerusalem, and we read about it last week out of the book of Luke. And he said that they did not understand the day of their visitation. We talked about that last week. And so because they did not understand the great things that were happening within the walls of Jerusalem and that God himself had just ridden in, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling Zechariah, fulfilling the fact that the son of David was going to ride into Jerusalem. And, and as he was accomplishing all that and they weren't understanding it, he ended up telling them, your house will be left to you desolate. Because he knew that come 70 AD, the temple was going to be destroyed. The Jews were going to be scattered. He knew all of that was coming, and he wept over Jerusalem. Okay, well, I believe that that is the, the background and the sort of foundation of what we're about to read, because Jesus wakes up the next morning, and he's hungry, we're told by Matthew. And he sees a fig tree, and he does something seemingly just odd, just peculiar. Here's the story, starting in verse 18. Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, because remember he left there, he went to Bethany, he lodged there in Bethany, and then in the morning he was coming back to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, because the soil is very rocky, you will, to this very day, occasionally see trees that just grow up by themselves, fig trees just grow up by themselves. And it's because they happen to have a location where there might be a little bit of water runoff. And so you'll just see random trees, singular trees. 
And that's what Jesus saw. He became hungry and he saw a lone fig tree by the road. And apparently he saw it from some distance. So he was walking toward it because he was hungry. Now the thing you need to know about fig trees is that fig trees typically will produce fruit three times a year. The last fruit that they'll produce usually is just before winter and sometimes that fruit will hang on until the spring but the fruit appears on the tree before the leaves and so if you see a fig tree with leaves on it you expect fruit well he saw a tree with leaves on it he expected fruit seeing a lone fig tree by the road he came to it and he found nothing on it except leaves only and he said to the tree I just find this fascinating He talks to trees because he is the Lord of everything. He's in charge of everything. And he says to the tree, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered and died. Can you do that? (laughs) You're glad he can't? Why? Would he go around killing things? What are you saying here? Tell us more about your husband. We need to know this. Jesus had the authority to do things like talk to wind and and waves when they were on the stormy sea and he was sleeping. And they came to him and said, don't you know we're perishing? And he got up, went out to the deck of the ship and said, stop it. Well, be still. And the wind stopped. And the waves laid down and the sea was calm because he has the authority to talk to wind and waves and water, the kind of water he can walk on. Can you do that? Oh, another thing you can't do. He has that kind of authority over all of nature, what we call nature. All of the physical universe obeys him because he's in control of it. And he understands that. He understands his absolute authority over everything and all things, including animals. Like when you go into the city, there's going to be a donkey. And the donkey will have a foal, untie it, bring it to me. How does he know this? Because he's in control of everything. The details, the minutiae. And so he speaks to the tree and says, there's no longer going to be any fruit on you. Well, throughout the Bible, you see parallels between Israel and fig trees. And Jesus has just finished condemning Jerusalem for not understanding the time of their visitation, for not understanding the very important things that were happening right there that week in their midst. And had they known their scripture, had they understood what God was up to, they would not have responded the way they did. And so he had just condemned them. And I think that's what's happening here in type is that he sees this tree in the same way that he expected Israel to produce fruit, fruit to righteousness, fruit to God. And when he arrived, there was no fruit. When he arrived at Jerusalem expecting fruit, no. And so here he is walking toward Jerusalem, and he sees a tree, and it has leaves. It sprouts. It's alive. It should be producing fruit. And notice fruit that serves him. He was hungry. He wanted to eat. He was looking for the fruit that would serve him. None. And he says, well, then, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. 
And at once the fig tree withered and it died. I can only assume that there has to be that kind of lesson in it, that kind of parallel in it. Otherwise, this makes no sense. Why would he do that? He had to know that occasionally there were trees that didn't bear fruit. He had to know that. But why stop, make a point of this one, kill it, and have Matthew write about it? It has to be because some larger lesson is being taught here. And I believe that larger lesson is that he expects fruit. Seeing this, the dis- yeah, I know, that was their reaction. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? How did it die all at once like that? Because they don't have the ability to do that. They don't have the authority to do that. And he does because he's different, because he's not like us. We're not like him. And he has absolute authority, and that means we have none. Seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Controversial passage. There are some portions of Christianity, especially among the Pentecostals, who will say that verse right there applies to everybody. If you believe in Christ, then you have the power to speak your own reality. You should have faith enough to move mountains. But then what they'll do is immediately say, now what that means is, they don't think literal mountain, what that means is you'll speak to your difficulty. What is your difficulty? What's your problem in life? Can't make your gas bill? Have a cold? Speak to your cold and tell it to go plant itself in the sea and it'll go. So they end up having to allegorize it like mad in order to say that it's universally applicable to everybody. But when Jesus was speaking, who was he speaking to? To his disciples. He was with his group. And he said to them that all things that they would ask in prayer, believing they would receive it. And as we continue into the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we see that that's true. We see that God did, in fact, respond to the prayers and the requests of the apostles. So I don't think that's a universally applicable verse. However... Having said that, I do believe that Jesus was being very literal because he did say, if you have faith and don't doubt, not only will you do what is done to the fig tree, which he had just done, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. We know that the predictions of Ezekiel, we know from the predictions in the book of of Revelation, even uh, the stuff that you read in the book of Joel, We know that all of nature, all of what we call planet Earth is going to be changed. It's going to be shaped. It's going to be reformed. When he comes back, there are going to be disturbances in the heavens. The stars aren't going to give their light. And the moon and the sun are going to become like sackcloth and ashes. And when he comes back, the light of his return is going to shine so brightly that he likens it to lightning that goes from the east to the west so that everybody sees it. And when, according to Zechariah, he comes down and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, the mountain cleaves in half and moves. Because he's the one with that kind of faith. 
He can change everything. He can move everything. Ultimately, this planet and everything in it, according to everything that Peter wrote, is going to be changed by fire. The whole of what we know as earthly reality is going to be burned up. And then we read about a new heaven and a new earth, which is physically different than the earth we currently live on. In other words, I think Jesus was being very, very literal in saying, if you had actual faith, genuine faith, you could do this kind of stuff because he could do those kinds of things and did them and is doing them and will do them. But what does that say then about us collectively and our real faith? Anybody in here moved any mountains lately? The actual mountains? I mean, I have a hard time talking my kids into cleaning their rooms. If I have a cold, I've got a cold. That's just it. I, I can't speak a new reality. We are utterly and completely dependent on our Savior. I don't believe that there's any human being who goes through their whole life never doubting. Because that was part of what he said. If you have faith and do not doubt. Anybody in this room going to say you never doubted? No doubt? Nothing? Yeah, it just doesn't exist. Because human beings are just prone to egocentrism. We're just prone to believing that these things that are happening to us right now are somehow in our control. We actually believe that we change the outcome of things. And then when it turns out that things don't go our way, our immediate response is doubt and questions and why not and why didn't that work? We are utterly and completely dependent on our Savior because of our complete inability. Now, by a gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells us, seals us until the day of our final and complete redemption. And by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have confidence in Christ and we have faith in Christ and in his finished work. But that is the power of the Spirit working through and in us. Remember, the Spirit had not come when he said this to his disciples. When he said this to his apostles, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And he said to them, if you had this kind of faith, well, they can't have that kind of faith. They're just human beings. They're incapable. They can't do it. We are just that dependent on the power of God, the Spirit of God, and our magnificent Savior. If you're in him and he is in you, then you are accepted in the beloved one and you can have faith in him. The point I'm making is even those things that we believe, even those things that we have confidence in, even the faith that we do have is the result of God's intervention in our lives. Left to yourself, you got nothing. So again, he gets all the glory. Again, he gets all the honor. Okay, just a couple more verses because this all ties together. I'm trying to tie this all together, and I know the clock is ticking. Verse 23 then. So when he had come into the temple, these same chief priests and elders that he had been dealing with, that he had been contending with the day before, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. So he goes into the temple. He starts teaching again. We don't know what he was saying. I would love to have heard the content of that teaching. And they say to him again, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, I really like the fact that Jesus doesn't answer their question. He feels no compunction to defend himself to anyone. 
He knows who he is. He knows why he's there. He knows what he's doing. And he will not lower himself to any human being's examination of himself. Jesus answered and said to them, well, then I'll ask you one thing, too, since you've asked me something. You've asked me by what authority I do these things, so now I'll ask you something. Which, if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Why do you do these things? What authority do you have? Okay, you've asked me a question, I'll ask you a question. And if you can answer my question, I'll answer your question. He took control of the conversation right away. Hmm. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, what source was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? Was this something that men made up? Was John just self-promoting when he was baptizing in the River Jordan? Or was it, in fact, a baptism ordained by God? Which was it? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, well, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say to us, then why didn't you believe him? Because after all, they're the ones who denied John, and ultimately John was beheaded. So we can't say it's from heaven, because then he's got us cornered. So if we say it's from men, verse 26, well, then we fear the multitude, because they all believe that John was a prophet. So Jesus wrapped them up in their own words and stuck them with a question he knew they couldn't answer. Neither answer was going to be adequate for them, and he knew that they'd be smart enough to figure out that they can't answer this question. So they say, we don't know. <laughs> this is after conspiring, getting together, talking about it. They go back to him and say, oh, we, we can't answer your question. And he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Hmm. He's in charge. He's in complete charge. He's in complete control. And you don't get to test, try, or judge him. You don't get to question him. You don't get to ask him why he's doing the things he's doing. He's doing them because he is exactly who he said he is. And that makes him the son of God. And nobody on planet Earth, no weaselly little human being, gets to go to the Lord of glory and say, you're going to answer me. I got questions. I want to know who made you boss of me. You don't get to ask those kind of questions. Because not, number one, he's smarter than you. Number two, he's more powerful than you. And number three, your entire eternity is dependent on him. So you don't get to question him. Now I'll give you one quick application to close up our morning. Jesus was uh, enwrapped with the zeal that he had for the house of God. Because that was the place where God is worshipped and where God alone has all the preeminence and gets all the glory. And twice in the three and a half years of his ministry, twice he went in there and made the point that the house of God is not for thievery, robbery, marketeering. It's not there for other people to get rich off the back of. That's not why the house of God exists. Should we apply that? Because within the church that is built by Jesus Christ, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is his church. The church belongs to him. And within the church that Jesus Christ created, constructed, 
and is sustaining to this very moment, he gets all the preeminence. It's about him and only about him. It's not about anybody. It's not about raising up any person. It's not about making anybody famous. And it's certainly not about huckstering. And it's certainly not about marketeering. And it's certainly not about people getting rich off the back of the finished sacrificial work of Christ. That is not what the church is for, and it's not what the church is about, and yet you can turn on the TV or radio any time of any day and see that kind of activity going on in the modern church. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. He's coming back. And when he comes back, judgment is going to begin in the house of the Lord. I, I just, I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of some of these people who are utilizing the church for their own benefit. I'll just throw that out there. You can apply it accordingly. But man, there's a lot of that mess out there. Any questions? Anything? We're good? In that case, say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.